some news for you. It is a jam-packed news day because we have the Democratic National Convention going on, so there's a lot to talk about there. Um, We have some fake scandals involving Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that we'll dive into. We have Rahm Emanuel is uh, coming back from total irrelevance in order to bash progressives and their hope for a better future. We have, um, I think, is most of the show today the DNC? Probably probably half of it is the DNC. I also have Cardi B did an interview with Biden and Tucker Carlson went after Cardi B. There's two separate Cardi B stories in today's show, so you're definitely not going to want to miss those. Um, and uh, I will also be making fun of Elizabeth Warren, which is one of our favorite pastimes now. So without further ado, let's get started. And... Um, We will do that with the Democratic National Convention, what's going on, and um, why it's kind of infuriating. So the Democratic Convention is going on, and um, I would describe it as embarrassing, soul-sucking, it looks like it's an infomercial that you'd see if you can't sleep and you turn on the TV at 3 a.m. It's some scam product. I feel like the uh, – I, I spoke to Corin about it, and I was like, is it just me? Is it just the channel I'm watching it on that, like, it appears to be very blurry, like, not HD? And he was like, no, man, that's, that's it. Like, it's not the channel you're watching it on. It's just, like, it's just it's poor quality. There were audio glitches. I mean, it's 
everything you can imagine. It's like a bunch of idiots got together to try to do a Zoom call, and none of them know how to use Zoom, and they're just, like, fumbling all over themselves. They were cutting to people too early. Um, it, it was just it, – it's a mess. It's a mess. And as I was watching it, the thing that kept popping in my mind is the same advice that I've been giving Joe Biden, like, hey, man, listen, if you just keep hiding, you will maintain like an eight or nine point lead on Trump. So keep doing that. I feel the same way about the DNC now. Like, what would we really be missing out on if we just didn't have a Democratic National Convention? We wouldn't be missing out on anything. Because the amazing thing is, so Biden was like plus eight or plus nine on Trump. And then he, he got out there and started giving more interviews and talking more. And then he picked Kamala Harris. And it was like his lead went from eight or nine points to like four points. So the more stuff he did, the worse he ended up. And I feel the same way watching the convention. It's like all these people are reminding me how much I hate them, and if they would just get away, then perhaps my hatred wouldn't be as seething as it is. So now listen, I'm a unique case. You know, I'm, I'm on the populist left. I, I, you know, you could say I caucus with the Democrats, but really I'm an independent. If I wasn't in New York, I would be registered as an independent. You know, in New York, I have to register as a Democrat to vote in Democratic primaries, unfortunately, because they're closed primaries. So maybe I'm not the, the, the you know, the key audience that they're trying to appeal to. But, like, my question to them is, okay, then who is? Like, who is? You know, I'm the guy who, like, wavered between either not voting, voting Green, or voting Biden. So, like, if I'm not the audience, the person that you really need to get, the kind of person that you need to get in order to win the next election, then who is the audience? Because watching the DNC... The overwhelming sense I got is this is only appealing to the people who are already definitely going to vote for Biden and love Biden and love standard corporate Democrats. So it's appealing to that crowd. And you know the other crowd it's it's appealing to? Moderate Republicans. Now, they've even gone way too far on this front. So let me show you this tweet because I really do think this says a lot. This is August 13th, 1996. Governor Christine Todd Whitman of New Jersey, Representative John Kasich, Ohio, and Representative Susan Molinari of New York all address the Republican National Convention in San Diego. So they are all speaking at the Democratic Convention now. So all these Republicans are now speaking at the Democratic Convention. Now, beyond that, you know who else we got? We got... Uh, Colin Powell, who gave a speech, and that was a surprise one, by the way. Just we didn't know about it beforehand until like you know maybe like a couple hours before he actually spoke yesterday. And also now Cindy McCain, the wife of John McCain. So Christine Todd Whitman, John Kasich, Susan Molinari, uh, Colin Powell, Cindy McCain, guys, they're going so above and beyond to get Republicans that. They are more welcoming of Republicans than they are of the left. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got like 60 seconds or 90 seconds or something like that to give her speech. And they're just packing the whole thing full of Republicans. Now, uh, there's a bunch of stuff going on uh, on Twitter about this. Like, 
people are, are doing the comparison. You know how all of the hashtag resistance people and the standard Democrats were crying and screaming about Joe Rogan endorsing Bernie Sanders and Bernie pointing out, or, or Bernie's team pointing out on Twitter that, hey, the number one podcast host in America endorsed me. People were going nuts over that. And myself and many other people were like, you guys are insane to, to view this as a bad thing. Like, this is what politics is about. You're trying to get people who would otherwise disagree with you to agree with you. So what you're seeing is, like, now people are taking all these Republicans speaking at the Democratic Convention, and they're trying to make that same point. They're trying to say, what do you mean? I thought this is what politics was about. You're trying to get people, you know, to agree with you. Here's the difference, and here's why that comparison is totally bogus. Joe Rogan was signing up to Bernie Sanders' social democratic platform. Joe Rogan was saying, yes, I'm going to throw my lot in with this guy. I'm going to support this guy, which means I'm supporting Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, ending the wars, you name it, all Green New Deal, all of Bernie's policies. If he's supporting him, he's signing up for that, right? So it's somebody who is nominally kind of like an independent, maybe a swing voter kind of person who's saying, I'm with Bernie. So I'm signing up to social democratic ideas. The problem with all these Republicans speaking at the Democratic National Convention with Biden as the nominee is that they're not signing up for a social democratic agenda. They're not signing up for left-wing ideas. They're correctly recognizing that Joe Biden is a moderate Republican himself, and so they know they don't have to change their mind on Dickie McGee's acts because Biden's already with them. So them speaking is an acknowledgement that the Democratic Party of today is the so-called moderate Republican Party of 1996, and that's the problem. The problem is the Democrats are fully embracing the idea of being the 1996 moderate Republican Party. And I tweeted this yesterday that, and I've said it a couple times on the show, in this country we don't have a Democratic Party. There is no Democratic Party. There's a Republican Party and there's a diet Republican Party. Those are your options. Your options are center-right or far-right. Your options are neoliberal corporatist or corporatist neoconservative warmongering authoritarian. Those are your options. Now, that's why we're so frustrated, and that's why people are, are mad at who the speakers are. Guys, listen, I, when it comes to Colin Powell, for example, he's literally a war criminal. Like, he lied us into a war. Remember holding up the, the uranium yellow cake vial at the UN trying to say, see, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, and the implication was like he's, he can launch on us at any second. That was nothing but scaremongering, lying us into a war that we're still in, by the way, which killed a minimum hundreds of thousands of innocent Iraqi civilians. I'm a pretty lenient guy. But I don't think I want war criminals speaking at, at the convention that's supposed to nominally represent my politics. I'm a registered Democrat, like I told you guys. Okay? Colin Powell is a Republican. So we're more welcoming of war criminal Republicans than of the Democratic base? And the answer is yes. I think they have a war criminal quota. Maybe they'll invite Bill Crystal as well. And listen, somebody tweeted this jokingly, but I think it's like half true. You don't think that if the Democrats could get George W. Bush to speak at the convention that they would? I'm convinced the Democrats would let George W. Bush speak at the Democratic Convention. And that's the problem. Listen, 
I hate Trump. I despise Trump. I despise George W. Bush just as much. I'm not cool with moderate Republican ideas, so to speak. What I'm in favor of is what the American people want. I'm in favor of Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars and a Green New Deal and legalizing marijuana and freeing the nonviolent drug offenders and eliminating uh, student loan debt. Like, that's what I'm in favor of. That's what I'm signing up for. The Democratic Party is not in favor of those things. The Democratic Party is also beholden to Wall Street and Big Pharma and the military-industrial complex and the for-profit health insurance companies. And that's the problem, is that the Democratic Party really is the diet Republican Party. They really are the moderate Republican Party. And this is them rubbing it in. See, they really think that by doing this, this is politically clever. Like, oh, we're going to hold the base. Like, Bernie will be such a cuck that he'll get all the base to fall in line. And we're also going to get so many of these moderate Republicans. So in other words, let's try the exact same thing that didn't work in 2016. Listen, I've heard it. I'm sure you guys have heard it too. There are people who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 literally cried about it. They cried about it because they felt it was so dirty and so disgusting to have to vote for somebody who was a supporter of Wall Street deregulation, who was a supporter of the Iraq war, who's a complete hawk, but they understood how terrible Donald Trump is. So they held their nose and did it, but they literally cried either before, during, or after voting for Hillary Clinton. The Democratic Party will not rest until every young leftist who votes for Biden does it with tears rolling down their faces. And that's what's so frustrating. Can you please, for the love of God, make it easier on people to do it? Can you please? No, they can't. They're going to keep running further and further right. They're going to keep inviting more and more Republicans. They're not changing Republican minds to sign on to left-wing social democratic ideas. They're agreeing with the Republicans on their terms, and that's the problem. That's the problem. Joe Biden supporting the Iraq war, Joe Biden being a deficit hawk and pushing social security cuts, Joe Biden doing the crime bill. The problem is the moderate Republicans know that that's Joe Biden. He's basically a moderate Republican. So, you know, forgive me for for being super annoyed by all this. Now, I do want to play for you one more thing here. It's not just that the Democratic convention is the diet Republican convention. It's also that the the Democratic speakers also sound like Republicans. So here's John Kerry proving that. When this president goes overseas, it isn't a goodwill mission. It's a blooper reel. He breaks up with our allies and writes love letters to dictators. America deserves a president who is looked up to, not laughed at. Donald Trump pretends Russia didn't attack our elections. And now he does nothing about Russia putting a bounty on our troops. So he won't defend our country. He doesn't know how to defend our troops. The only person he's interested in defending is himself. This is the bottom line. Our interests, our ideals, and our brave men and women in uniform can't afford four more years of Donald Trump. Our troops can't get out of harm's way by hiding in the White House bunker. They need a president who will stand up for them and President Biden will. Joe's moral compass has always pointed in the right direction, from the fight to break the back of apartheid to the struggle to wake up the world to genocide in the Balkans. Joe understands that none of the issues of this world, not nuclear weapons, not the challenge of building back better after COVID, not terrorism, and certainly not the climate crisis, none 
can be resolved without bringing nations together with strength and humility. Joe understands our values don't limit our power. They magnify it. He knows you can't spread democracy around the world if you don't practice it at home. And he knows that even the United States of America needs friends on this planet. Before Donald Trump, we used to talk about American exceptionalism. The only thing exceptional about the incoherent Trump foreign policy is that it has made our nation more isolated than ever before. Joe Biden knows we aren't exceptional because we bluster that we are. We are exceptional because we do exceptional things. That speech could have been delivered at a Republican convention. Virtually all the arguments there are right-wing arguments so, or pro-establishment arguments. He does the whole, like, love letters to dictators thing. That's, of course, a reference to, to Kim Jong-un. Meanwhile, of all the things to attack Trump about, North Korea is literally the dead bottom of the list. Why? Because we're not at war with them. We're not at war with them. He was attempting to make peace. Yes, Trump is a ridiculous character. Yes, Kim Jong-un is a ridiculous character as well. Yes, North Korea is terrible in a thousand different ways. Of course. I would rather have somebody try to make peace than the opposite. But no, he attacks him over, like, the one thing he did well. North Korea. The one thing. Love letters to dictators. Then he does the whole stupid, and this is big in elite circles, like, America's being laughed at. Oh, no. Do I give a fuck if, you know, weirdo pretty boy Trudeau is, like, sneering at us? I don't care about that guy. He can go take some more goofy namaste pictures, okay? I don't care about that. Why is that so important to them? Because they're smug, elitist pricks. America is being laughed at. Again, on the list of things that concern me, I put, like, wages and health care and war way above, oh, my God, what do other countries in the cool club think about us? Uh, then, of course, he does the old Russia-gating and fear-mongering, and he brings up the Russian bounty story, which has, by the way, been totally debunked. Even conservatives like um, uh, Colin Powell was like, mm, that's absurd and that's not true. So, uh, I mean, they're never going to stop. They're never going to stop Russia-gating, even though we had the Mueller report, even though literally people thought Donald Trump was going to get dragged out of, the, out of the Oval Office in handcuffs for treason. That didn't happen, and now they've concocted, you know, more absurd theories and connections to further validate in their mind this preposterous theory of he's like a Manchurian candidate. That's exactly what, um, what John Kerry is pushing there. Then he says, oh, he won't defend our country or the troops, and he brings up how the United States spreads democracy. Really? Is that what we do? We spread democracy. It's not that we in intervene, interfere in other countries and overthrow democratically elected governments and put in right-wing dictators that serve our interests. No, 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 it's not that, even though it's exactly that. We're going to call that spreading democracy. And he brings up American exceptionalism. He talks about American exceptionalism. That's the neoconservative idea. It's this nonsensical American supremacist idea that we're better than the rest of the world. It's not that everybody's equal, we're all human beings, we have a common shared humanity. No, the United States is better than the rest of the world. We are American exceptionalists. We're uniquely positioned to be the world's sole superpower and run the world like an imperialist power. We're the policemen of the world. And this is an idea he's pushing at a democratic national convention, American exceptionalism. Oh, are we permanently stuck in a neoconservative mindset? Is that what it is? Is that how deep rooted the military industrial complex is in both parties and the neocons are in both parties 
that everybody's just drunk on the American exceptionalist Kool-Aid. American exceptionalism manifests itself as a fundamentalist religion, where you think America can do no wrong, and the answer is always more U.S. troops, more intervention, more bombing. I can't believe he literally talked about spreading democracy. And he, when he was arguing that, oh, Trump won't defend our country or the troops, think about what he's incentivizing Trump to do there. He won't defend our country or the troops. So what exactly are you calling for? What exactly do you want him to do? You want him to sanction other countries? You want him to sanction Russia over that BS story about bounties uh, on our troops? You want, or you want to invade? If, if you're saying he won't defend our country or the troops, then what would defending it be? Another war? An invasion somewhere? I can't. Guys, the, the Democratic Party is so broken that we're looking at a situation where we have a pandemic, 170,000 people dead as a result of a virus. Five million people have had the virus in the United States. Other countries have largely defeated the virus. We're still struggling. People are dying every single day here. We have an economic collapse happening. We have, you know, 80% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. We have 28 million might become homeless. The max we have right now in the country is maybe like a million homeless people. And we're talking about 28 million might become homeless. People can't pay the bills. And this is what the Democrats are doing at their convention. They're not talking about universal basic income. They're not talking about Medicare for all. They're not talking about any of the real solutions. They're not talking about what should be, you know, leading the charge right now, which is a new New Deal or universal masks. This is what they're doing. They're inviting Republicans from 1996, and we got John Kerry sounding like a Republican. And by the way, John Kerry ran against George W. Bush in 2004 after we already had four disastrous years of Bush, and he lost. You want to know why he lost? He ran a Republican-like campaign. His campaign was like, hey, man, I'm just like George W. Bush, except a little smarter, so vote for me. And he lost. This is exactly what Hillary did as well. Trump was saying, make America great again. She was like, America's already great. I'm an American exceptionalist. So you want to you keep doing the same failed stuff? Now, listen, we might be in a situation where things are so bad that the Democrats still win but they're going to take all the wrong lessons away from it. They're going to take the lesson of being more bellicose, more hawkish, more neoconservative, more corporatist. And uh, listen, we can't afford that. The world can't afford that. We have too many crises on our hands. So, I mean, this is beyond pathetic. The Democratic National Convention is like the worst thing I've ever seen. Uh, I wish I was exaggerating. I wish that was hyperbolic. But I really swear to you that I felt depressed after I watched even just 30 minutes of it. Okay, next. Actually, no, wrong. Let me... I have to do one more on the overall, on the overall convention because it, it deserves it, believe me. All right, here we go. So I want to talk about the insufferable smugness of the DNC and the RNC. It's not just the DNC. We haven't gotten around to having the RNC yet, but believe me, that's going to be just as bad, if not worse. And yes, it can get worse than the DNC. So um, this really captures the entire mood, the entire feeling or vibe of the DNC. Um, 
when it ended, so Eva, Eva Longoria was hosting, was it the first night or the second? I think the first night. It was the first night, I think. She was hosting, and um, so at the end of it, she says bye. Now, we could talk a, a lot about even the fact that they have her doing this. The Democrats love to lean on the fact that a lot of Hollywood people like the Democrats. And that's, that's like becoming who their base is. Like wealthy, well-connected, well-known people and mix in like suburbanites. Like this is becoming the Democratic Party. It, it's decidedly becoming not a party of labor and working people. Now, I'm not saying the Republicans are a party of working people because they're not. They're even worse than the Democrats on that front. But like this is the Democrats proudly are embracing this whole like, yes, we're the Hollywood party. Yeah, but people might like Hollywood stars when they're on screen for a movie or a show. But in real life, everybody kind of views them as insufferably smug and insular. So I don't know if that's something that really you should be championing. But anyway, so Eva Longoria is hosting. And at the end of it, so she wraps up the show. And then this plays, this is the end of the DNC. This is what they decided to end it with, a music video. Take a look. to many people about this. Every single one of them was convinced. I thought that was a parody. Like, I thought people on Twitter were messing around and they were, like, pretending, like, imagine if this was part of the DNC. <laughs> no, that's real. They actually, they actually played that. It looks like some Chappelle show skit. Other people were saying, like, Tim and Eric or something. I don't know. I've never... I'm basically a grandpa. I, I, I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> but Chappelle Show, I was like, yeah, that looks like there's a Chappelle Show thing. It was like a shitty green screen and, like, fake drama, and he's got the cape and stuff. Like, Or it's like, there's, like, some adult swim thing that you'd see late at night. Like, what, are, what, what is this? No, they really thought, like, oh, my God, you guys, we're going to look so cool if we do this. <laughs> I was joking around, and I tweeted, like, this is the moment Trump won re-election, and the tweet went viral. <laughs> I, I mean, that's like, now listen, it, the whole night was like that, though. That's, that's why this story is, like, so interesting to me, is that you think, like, oh, that super out-of-touch weird moment was, like, unique. No, the whole night was like that. Guys, Elizabeth Warren was doing some sort of talk or some panel, indigenous people, about Native Americans. But the... You had the whole scandal where you, with the, uh, how are you guys this dumb? How are you guys this dumb? My main takeaway from the entire DNC was like, oh, they could easily still mess this up and lose to Trump. Trump is a ridiculous, disgusting, grotesque, 
pathetic, corrupt loser. I can't say enough bad stuff about him. But how is it, like, the fact that we're not up, we meaning Democrats, we're not up 15 to 20 points on this guy with a pandemic and a depression, what does that say? It says the Democrats are also incredibly out of touch. Incredibly out of touch. This, if you were going to do the DNC, you shouldn't have done anything at all. But if you're going to do it, the whole thing had to be focused on the crises of our, our day. Climate change, COVID-19, economic collapse. Like, it, you have to focus on that. How are you not talking endlessly about health care, Medicare for all, covering everybody? I, I mean, instead we have panels with Elizabeth Warren where she's talking about Native American rights or something. And we have songs like this and celebrities left and right and... I just, okay, so terrible, 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 ridiculous, seems fake, seems absurd. Um, But now let me tell you what's going on at the RNC, what's going to happen at the RNC. Breaking, Covington student Nick Sandman, Sandman, however you say it, and St. Louis gun-toting couple Mark and Patricia McCloskey are reportedly scheduled to speak at the Republican National Convention. I got one better than that, too. You know who else is there or going to be there? Brock Turner. There was, a famous, he was, there was a famous case involving Brock Turner where he was accused of some, you know, not very pretty things. I'm sure many of you know the case. We don't have to rehash it here. Now, regardless of what you think about that case, okay, what are you guys doing? Like, what, is, what are the Republicans doing? You, you guys are all way too online. We're gonna, are we seriously just going to rehash culture war debates as the entire country witnesses the apocalypse right in front of our eyes? As we witness in eviction and foreclosure crisis, the likes of which we've never seen in American history, where 32% of people in this country last month couldn't pay their rent? So we're going to have a homelessness crisis. We already have a health care crisis, like 30 million people have no health care in this country. We have an economic crisis on top of that, a 20% real unemployment. A lot of the people who still have jobs had to take big pay cuts because of COVID. All these problems, and this is what they're leaning into? This is what they're leaning into. Let's, let's bring back up some goofy-ass culture war nonsense and, like, plant a flag and talk about this endlessly. How out of touch can you be? Now, by the way, there's a, re- there's a method to this madness. There's a reason why they do it. Because what else are they going to do? What are they going to do? They're going to run on their 2017 tax cut bill, which blew a $2 trillion hole in the deficit and gave, like, 83% of the benefits to the top 1%. Basically, their 2017 tax cut bill was like, let's give rich people all the money. Let's give them everything. Like, that's what they did. They're they're proud oligarchs. What else are they going to do? Are they going to run on, you know, bailing out corporations to the tune of $5 trillion? Is that what they're going to run on? Full corporate socialism, which is what they implemented, is that what they're going to run on? Are they going to proudly run on that, which nobody likes and nobody agrees with? Is that what they're going to do? So they can't talk about economic stuff because they're on the wrong side of every economic issue, and they're massively, massively corrupt. They're owned by Wall Street. They're owned by Big Pharma. They're owned by the military-industrial complex. This is The Republican Party is a wholly-owned subsidiary of corporate America. That's what they are. 
Then you've got to sprinkle in the authoritarianism, which they proudly embrace, Trump threatening the Insurrection Act, among many other things. And other than that, the only thing that animates their ideology is, let's trigger the libs. Let's own the libs. Whatever the libs are for, I'm against. So here's some culture war issues. Hey, remember the thing where the two awkward old people were standing out there with guns because they thought protesters were coming at them? Yeah, let's bring them. Let's bring the, the, the Covington kids. Let's bring Brock Turner. Taking, we have a country that is collapsing in front of our eyes, and everything is being boiled down to this stupid culture war nonsense, and they're leaning into it because they have nothing else. They have nothing else. Nothing at all. Remember when Trump was running on ending the wars, and then he didn't? And that we're still in all the wars we were in before? Remember that? Remember that? Weird, he's not talking about how he ended the wars, because he didn't. He's not talking about his drone strikes, which are killing civilians, and was a 432% increase over Obama. He's not talking about that. Why? Because nobody, nobody's in favor of that. It's pathetic. He's continuing the status quo. So anyway, here, let's talk about the Covington thing. Let's do that. Let's talk about Brock Turner. Let's talk about, let's have 413 speakers bring up cancel culture and the left with their safe spaces are so dumb. <laughs> Isn't it stupid when college kids have pink hair? Oh, got them. Who cares? Who cares? And there are, there are people who proudly lean into this stuff. You guys are dating yourselves, man. You guys are up your own asses sniffing your own farts. Can all of you just shut the fuck up and focus on something serious? Imagine getting lost in the battlefield of the culture war at a time like right now when the real issues have never smacked us in the face harder. That's where we are. So listen, the RNC and the DNC are insufferably smug, and they're proving how out of touch they are with the American people. Okay. All right, now let's talk about the fake scandal going on. So there's a fake scandal currently going on where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is getting a bunch of backlash for nominating Bernie Sanders to be the Democratic nominee in her, like, 60-second or 90-second speech. Um, but the interesting thing is she, she wasn't going rogue. Like, it was portrayed like, oh, my God, she's going rogue and nominating Bernie. Apparently, she was just following the convention procedural rules. Like, she was supposed to do that, and anybody who was familiar with the process was like, yeah, that's what we know she's doing it. It's not like Biden was backstage offended or something. He was like, yeah, that's, this is what she's supposed to do. So, but now there's a bunch of articles about it with clickbaity titles as if she was going rogue. Now, by the way, if there was a situation where she wasn't supposed to do this, but she did this, that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. I mean, that would just be like, you know, planting a flag, taking a stand, making a case that, no, we're not going to settle for this nonsense anymore. I want Medicare for all. This guy's for it. That guy's not. 69% of the American people are for Medicare for all now. So you know what? Piss off. Piss off. But she wasn't going rogue, and she wasn't taking a stand. She was just doing her job. But she's still getting crap for it, as if she went rogue. Um, so now we have, here's some of the uh, establishment backlash. Take a look at this clip. 
not he suits the party. I don't think it was about role for AOC tonight, not saying Joe Biden's name. Uh, yes, she was nominating Bernie Sanders, but she didn't have to not say Joe Biden's name at all during that message. I think it was intentional until she tells me otherwise, and then I still wouldn't believe it. But what did you make of that in terms of what it says about the state of play in your party? Well, I think there's a couple things to say here. Number one, um, she is one of the most dynamic figures in the party, there's no doubt. And to, uh, I think, pigeonhole her into a one-minute, 90-second speaking slot where her specific job is to nominate uh, one of the other, the, the other candidates, I, I just don't think gave her the space to be able to expound and tell the story of where we are right now. And so it's kind of hard to judge what she did or didn't do in 90 seconds. She could have said his name in 90 seconds. You know it. Well, I know it. If you had done that job, wouldn't you have mentioned Joe Biden somehow in the 90 seconds? I will say this. Adi Barkan and the way that he was able to tell his story and to talk about the kind of change he wants to see and to showcase that kind of emotion from the progressive left on to a Joe Biden and the decency of the man, I think more than did that work. And so I think between uh, both Bernie Sanders' speech uh, yesterday, uh, what AOC talked about today, and then Hani Barkhan's extremely moving uh, presentation on the future of health care and the vision that we all uh, need to uh, embrace with uh, guaranteeing health care for everyone, many of us prefer Medicare for all, uh, but the guarantee for health care in the midst of a pandemic, I do think reflects really well on uh, Joe Biden and what we can come to expect from his leadership and the opportunity in front of us if the movement comes along. Donk, I'm going to let you slip that straight question I asked you about AOC for two reasons. One, I got something I want to ask Bagala, and two, I like your mustache. Now, Chris Cuomo here was actually somewhat nice about it, but he's reflecting the sentiment that I've seen throughout the media where they're basically like, how dare she? The first argument was, oh, my God, she you know, did the Bernie endorsement, so she went rogue. That was factually not true. She's just following the procedures. And then the second argument they fell back on was she didn't even mention Joe Biden. She had 60 to 90 seconds. I don't know how you mention anything in that time frame. You wanted her to take her 60 to 90 seconds and, and heap praise on Joe Biden? Guys, watching the dynamic of this election is really terrifying because it's almost like, you know what this strikes me as? It's almost like Biden and the corporate wing, they're acting like a jealous, insecure, significant other who needs constant reassurance that like, yeah, I love you, you're doing okay, you're doing great, like I'm with you, yay, we'll fight, we'll be together, yay. And like, the, but the reason why they're so insecure and jealous is because Biden's not going to do any of the things that the left wants him to do. So, like, yeah, we're not excited about it. We're not happy about you. Are there going to be plenty of people who suck it up and vote for you anyway? Yes, but they're not going to be happy about it. But it's almost like they, they want that extra layer on top. They want you to not just support Joe in the sense that you vote for him even if you're not happy about it. They want you to, like, support him and be enthusiastic. And it's like, we would be lying to you if that's how we supported you, if that's how we acted. So the fact that they're asking for, like, why didn't you say his name? Why didn't you heap praise on him? For the love of God, she said before that she's going to vote for Joe. 
She's already said it. Like, what do you want? What more do you want? They want that constant reassurance, that constant praise, as if you can kind of, like, make up the enthusiasm that Bernie had from the left. You can't do it because Joe voted for the Iraq War. Joe wrote the crime bill. didn't just vote for it. Wrote the crime bill. Joe, you know, is a deficit hawk. He tried to cut Social Security. The list goes on and on, man. That's why it's policy-related. Young people know that Joe Biden is a moderate Republican, and they're reacting that way. And the other thing is, like, how often do they disrespect the left? They do it all the time. Like, even this Unity Commission was just a giant attempt to placate the left. Hey, what if I pretend to take you seriously, and we have some meetings where, like, you and and the centrists come together and you work out some policy details, and then we'll have a platform that Joe Biden will proceed to ignore every little bit of the entire time he's in office. But at least I gave you some pats on the head and acted like, oh, I'm taking you seriously. I care about what you have to say. No to Medicare for all. No to free college. No to, you know, um, legalizing marijuana. So it's just, it's placating the left. But even after placating us, disrespecting us, you don't think it was disrespectful to give her originally 60 seconds to speak? And pre-recording the message, they didn't even give it to her live. They said, we'll give you 60 seconds, and it'll be pre-recorded, and we have to check your comments to make sure they're okay. Like, you can repeatedly disrespect the left, and you still expect the left to just, like, shut up and praise you and fall in line and act like we're in love with your campaign? It's just so pathetic. I mean, even how Bernie lost. It was at the very last minute. Barack Obama made some phone calls to Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete and promised them positions in the administration in return for drop out now and endorse Joe. So at the last minute, they coalesced, screwed the populist progressive who would have given us health care, and they expect you not only to shut up and vote for Joe and hold your nose, they expect you to, like, be happy about it and cheery about it. And that's what's so frustrating about this discourse, is that, like, if you talk to many people on the left, she's already being too conciliatory. We're already rolling our eyes, like, Jesus Christ, like, really? You're going to bend the knee that much as well? But when you listen to the conservative, or the, the centrist tax, I should say, all of them are like, she was rude by not mentioning Biden in the 12 seconds she got to speak. So wrong. Why doesn't she love the moderate Republican Joe Biden? Because she's not a moderate Republican. Get over it. Okay, next. Rahm Emanuel. There was a fight between Rahm Emanuel and a progressive on ABC. Um, Now, you could kind of tell, like, you can see that it gets tense for a second. Like, you could tell that normally you get that, you know, fake kind of jovial banter in these establishment outlets. But there was a moment here where it was like, ooh, people are not feeling these vibes. Like, these, these guys really disagree and probably don't like each other. So I think this is an important thing to watch because it's very indicative of the broader split in the Democratic Party and what the two sides are representing. So let's watch, then I have a lot to say about it. like AOC are going to be able to bury the hatchet and unify the party. I think we already have. I mean, the reality is that most of the supermajority far 
are almost 100% of progressive support Joe Biden are going to work and are already working together with the Biden campaign to make sure we deliver victory. I think the big question and what people don't get about progressives is that we're always fighting for a better future. That's why we're progressives. And so as much as we are excited about getting rid of Donald Trump, we know there is more work to do. We're a little disappointed by the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of racial unrest and we can't talk about health care in the way that we know that people need us to talk about health care. We're in the middle of a racial unrest. We can't talk about what we need to do to end the preschool to prison pipeline, to get rid of, um, to talk about the crime bill and how we need to make sure that we decarcerate our prisons. These are conversations that we would expect to be able to have in a year like this, but we're not. We're talking about what Donald Trump is, is or is not, which is a very big disappointment. In the end of the day, politically, it's about winning, and Donald Trump is the single greatest issue, and we want to make this a referendum on him. We and disagree about that. I know we, we do. Think that we think we want people. On we, we, people want to vote for something, Ron, and you uh, know that. I do. We already know that Donald Trump is a disaster. We don't need four days of that. We need to know what we're going to do to make people whole. Yeah, I'm for four days to make sure that Donald Trump, they know he's a disaster, and we have the answer to that problem. Rahm Emanuel gets legitimately offended at the notion that maybe the Democrats should push for policy, that maybe what this really should be about is how are we going to improve people's lives when we have a pandemic that's killing people and we have an economic implosion that we're witnessing in front of our eyes and we have like a foreclosure and eviction crisis that's about to happen, which means a homelessness crisis. He was offended at the notion that, hey, maybe that should take precedence over Trump. And he fired back. He's like, but this, we're trying to make this referendum on Trump. And I'm with the American people on this. Interesting, because you're not with the American people on Medicare for All when 69% of them support it. You're not with the American people on legalizing marijuana, which is an overwhelming majority of the American people want that. You're not with the American people on free college. Rahm Emanuel famously said during the Obama administration that progressives are, and I quote, fucking stupid. That's who he is. So here's the point, guys. The reason why he wants to make it about Trump and he wants that to be the centerpiece of the argument is because he wants the power. He wants the Democrats in power. And then here's what he wants to do with that power. Dick. The end goal is to get the power. The end goal is the win. Because then he gets to turn around and say, we're, we're in office. That's the W. That was the whole point. It, and meanwhile, what progressives are saying is, no, that's not. If you get in power, whoop-de-frickin'-do, that doesn't mean anything if you're not improving people's lives. And, and it's just, this is too perfect because... What Rahm Emanuel's doing by saying let's focus on Trump is purposefully leaving out all the policy talk so that you, there's nothing to even hold him accountable to. There's no criteria. There's no standard by which you can evaluate how he's governing. And, and this gets to the story that we discussed the other day. The Democrats, behind the scenes, now they're saying to each other, okay, well, Bernie lost, the left lost, so Medicare for all, gone, going, going, gone. We're not interested. But now they're even saying... Who are we kidding? A lot of us were advocating for, um, you know, a public option. 
but we're going to drop that too. And now let's talk about just expanding the Affordable Care Act. Let me ask you a question. What do we have, like 30 million Americans now that don't have health insurance? If you go with this plan of just vaguely and broadly expanding the Affordable Care Act and not even including a public option, how many people are going to be left without health care even if Rahm Emanuel gets his ideal health system implemented? If you're not doing a public option, that means everything is in the private marketplace. If you leave it in the private marketplace, that means people have to pay out of pocket. If people have to pay out of pocket, that means a lot of people will not be able to afford it. So even in Rahm Emanuel's ideal world where he gets his exact health system he wants implemented, how many people are going to be left without health insurance? The answer is millions. There will be millions of people without health insurance under Rahm Emanuel's ideal system. That, Rahm, is why we argue with you and why we disagree with you and why we think you're ridiculous. You're a power-hungry moron. The whole point is the winning and the self-aggrandizement and getting into office. You don't actually care about the consequences of your actions. You don't actually care about policy. Because the end goal has to be, okay, look, we got in office, but now we have to fight tooth and nail to get every single American covered and make sure nobody goes bankrupt ever again because of health care bills. And, and, I mean, this is, of course, what the left is pushing for. Of course this is what the left wants. But he's like, no, only talk about Trump, only make it about Trump, and then we'll get in power and do absolutely nothing, and that will lead to the rise of the next Trump. And by the way, he would never acknowledge that fact. Like, just so you know, Donald Trump won after eight years of Obama and Biden. What does that tell you? Tells me the status quo was so terrible, was so bad, that people were willing to roll the dice on somebody as ridiculous as Trump. So now you think we just get rid of Trump, have the Democrats in power, and that's it. No, it's gonna, you're going to seesaw right back to a more competent right-wing demagogue authoritarian fake populist. President Tucker Carlson, President Josh Hawley, Mike Pence. But, you know, it, it, it's so short-sighted, and it's decidedly against policy outcomes. Because he's not in favor of any of the things that you and I are in favor of. He's literally just not for the things that we're in favor of. Because what I'm asking for, and what most of you guys are asking for, is so basic. Literally all I want is to catch up to the rest of the developed world on a number of fronts. That's it. Give everybody health care. Give everybody college. Give everybody a decent amount of vacation time. Now with the pandemic, we need a UBI. Like, that's all we're asking for. But they act like, you know, sweet Jesus, we're... Lenin or, or Marx or Stalin or Mao, that's how they treat us when we're just like, can we just have everybody have health care in the middle of a pandemic? Can we just copy every other developed world and do that? No. Instead, Rahm Emanuel will get offended at the notion that we can't just talk about Trump. We can't just make it about Trump. Of course, Trump bad. That's so obvious. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Rahm Emanuel's answer is piss off. I'm going to do nothing, but you're going to take it because at least I'm not that guy. He literally was offended at the notion we should maybe focus on policy and put that above just anti-Trump standard nonsense. He was offended at that. Guys, they're playing you for fools, man. They think you're a sucker. They really do. Rahm Emanuel thinks you're a sucker. He just wants the power. He just wants the position. He wants to do nothing with that power, with that position. And he couldn't make it any more clear.
Okay, next. You're going to be shocked to hear this, but MSNBC was fawning over the milk toast stale Democratic convention. They thought it was the best thing ever. So um, here's probably the best moment that highlights exactly what this network is for. This is what Joy Reid said about it. You know, the presentations were wonderful on the first night. This was smooth. It was, a, you know, I felt like as I was watching it, we were over the Biden's house. It was so relatable. Yeah. You, I mean, who can't relate to Joe Biden? You know, my mom was a college professor. I'm like, wow, I, I think Joe Biden might be my mom. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these guys, they're so relatable. They're so normal. They're sort of, they're cut out of this, you know, middle Americana in a way that the Trumps are just not. Um, they're so not unusual that it's actually comforting to watch them. That's why she has that job, just so you understand. That's why she has that job, to say stuff like that. You know, people who are Democrats, people who are on the left, everybody knows when you look at Fox News, everybody knows what their point is. The whole point of Fox News is to be the propaganda arm of the Republican Party, the propaganda arm of Donald Trump. That's why they exist. That's their mission. MSNBC exists to be the propaganda arm of the Democratic Party. By the way, that does not mean they're leftists. That does not mean they're progressives. Because it's not about ideology. It's about the structure of the Democratic Party and Democratic leadership. Their agenda is the agenda of MSNBC. So really, this represents the Nancy Pelosi's, the Chuck Schumer's, the Joe Biden's, the neoliberal corporate Democrat consensus. That's what they represent. And I've never seen a better example of them playing their role. That's what this is. They're playing their role. Because it's not like this isn't even subtle. This isn't even subtle. Now, does she really believe these things? I'm sure she does. But again, that's why she was hired. That's why she's in that position. It's not, it's not nefarious in, in how they do the propaganda. It's the people who get those jobs are the ones who they already know are going to say the right things. So that's why Wolf Blitzer gets about 17 hours a day on CNN. He's never going to say something that rocks the boat. He's never going to say something that's interesting. He's going to always represent the establishment of both parties. That's what Wolf Blitzer does. Sean Hannity, biggest cheerleader for Republicans. He's there because that's exactly what they want in that role. MSNBC, Joy Reid, Rachel Maddow, they will go with the exact line that powerful Democratic leaders want them to go with. So what's the message here? I mean, think about it. The concern of the left is this guy's not, he's not going to fight for regular people. He's going to be a standard elitist. This is what the left is saying about Joe Biden. So what do they do? Look at all the arguments they make. I felt like I was over Biden's house. I only go over friends' houses, and we got to be close to do that. Are me and Joe Biden close? Are you and Joe Biden close? I think you are. <laughs> They're so relatable. Biden is like my mom. For a second, I was like, is this my mom? He's so normal. This is middle Americana. I wish all that stuff was true. I wish he reflected middle America. I mean, if he did, 
he'd be for Medicare for all now, wouldn't he? He'd also be for legalizing marijuana. These are both overwhelmingly popular positions now that he's not in favor of. And guys, that's not a little thing. Like some people might roll their eyes that I always come back to these examples, but these aren't little things. When it comes to Medicare for all, we're the only developed country that doesn't have one version or another of a universal health care system. People die. 40,000 people die every year because they don't have access to basic health care in this country. Now we have a pandemic. Now we have some people getting COVID bills over a million dollars. Medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy. These are not little things. This is like one of the most important issues, if not the most important issue. And they're overlooking the fact that he's not even in theory for Medicare for All to do rank propaganda for him like this. On the marijuana front, listen, this is the guy who wrote the crime bill. If he wants to make amends for his terrible history, his terrible record when it comes to race issues, whether it's writing the crime bill or working with segregationists as he did, well, the way you do that is to legalize marijuana and free every single nonviolent drug offender who's locked up as a result of Joe Biden's work. Every single one, because guess what? The drug war is racist and it disproportionately locks up people of color. So you should free every single nonviolent drug offender and that moves us closer to racial justice. Instead, he goes out there and pretends he's, like he's for racial justice without actually wanting to do anything on that front. This is, listen, this is what you get when you watch MSNBC. And there is an audience that likes this. It's wealthy suburbanite wine moms. That's, that's who enjoys this. And, you know, but it's, it's pathetic, man. It's pathetic. You are the mirror image of Sean Hannity on Fox News. You will defend the Democratic Party no matter what they do. And guess what? The Democratic Party has already proven they'll continue a lot of the Republican policies. Barack Obama continued the wars. Barack Obama continued the illegal NSA spying. Now, when Republicans did it, oh, you might say, I don't know about all that. But then when the Democrats do it, shh, so relatable. It's like I'm over their house. It's like Biden is my mom. You want to you melt your brain watching this? Please, by all means, go right ahead. But just know you're being played, man. You're being played. They're not telling you the truth. They're never going to tell you the truth. They're hacks. This is exactly like she's sitting next to Rachel Maddow here. Maddow, her whole thing, she was all in on Russiagate. She was telling her audience, making her audience believe that Donald Trump would be dragged out of the White House in handcuffs because he's a Manchurian candidate and he's Vladimir Putin's puppet. She was making people believe this. And then it didn't happen. And then there was no moment of like, wow, hmm, I guess I, I misread this, huh? There was no moment like that. She just kept going. She just kept going. She used the disproving of her grand theory as further evidence that her theory was correct, which is literally the hallmark of a conspiracy theory. And then she'll smugly go after Republicans for believing in conspiracy theories when she's herself a conspiracy theorist. I don't, I, this is just, it's so pathetic. Never in my wildest dreams did I think a decade ago that MSNBC would be this bad. But here we are. Here we are. A guy who supported all the outsourcing jobs. You know, cover up for a guy who was in favor of the Patriot Act. Cover up for a guy who voted for the Iraq War. Cover up for a guy who wrote the crime bill. Listen, I got no problem with people who make an honest case for Joe Biden. But this is not that. This is just like, I don't even know the right word for it. It's beyond fawning. We need to invent a new word for how much this is doing propaganda for the Democrats, because the words that already exist are not sufficient. 
Okay. All right, let me do one more, then we'll take a quick break. So here's a story that largely flew under the radar. This is in Huffington Post. The Democratic National Committee this week quietly dropped language calling for an end to fossil fuel subsidies and tax breaks from its party platform, HuffPost has learned. On July 27th, officials added an amendment to the manager's mark, a ledger of party demands voted on as one omnibus package, stating, quote, Democrats support eliminating tax breaks and subsidies for fossil fuels and will fight to defend and extend tax incentives for energy efficiency and clean energy. The amendment was approved, but the statement, which reflects pledges presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden and his running mate Kamala Harris each made on the campaign trail, disappeared from the final draft of the party platform circulated Monday. In an emailed statement, a DNC spokesperson said the amendment was, quote, incorrectly included in the manager's mark and taken out after the error was discovered. Activists accused the DNC of retroactively removing the amendment from the final draft of the platform. Too perfect. This is just too perfect. So, again, people thought, the left thought, activists thought, the base thought that Democrats, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, were openly supporting eliminating tax breaks and subsidies for fossil fuel companies. And they pulled it out. Think about, think about how sad that is because of how simple a demand that is. This isn't even saying, like, in theory, let's eliminate fossil fuels, which, by the way, at some point we have to do if we want to not destroy civilization. But I digress from that. This isn't that. This is, okay hey, maybe we shouldn't do corporate welfare anymore. We shouldn't do corporate socialism that props up some of the most profitable companies on planet Earth. Why is tax money going to ExxonMobil? And then they turn around and say, oh, this is because we've got to incentivize research and development, so give me billions of taxpayer dollars. By the way, it's not really for that. It's because of corruption. ExxonMobil gives politicians money, and then the politicians give them subsidies. So it's just, it's total corruption. But to, to just cut off the corporate welfare is a no-brainer. And they even went back on that. They went back on tax breaks for fossil fuel companies, and they went back on that. They also are going back on saying, let's do tax incentives for energy, uh, you know, green technology, green energy, non-fossil fuel forms of energy. Like, let's do tax incentives for that. No, that's gone now, too. <laughs> Can I please have a creme, good sir? No! You'll get nothing and you'll like it. Trump is bad. Yes, sir, Trump is very bad. Please do all the things that he does. Thank you. I mean, how sad is this, man? It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. Now, by the way, here, I'll, I'm going to go a step further. <laughs> of course. Um, even if they kept it in, I wouldn't have thought that Biden was actually going to follow through on this. Even if they had kept the language in, do I think Biden would have like, you know, I'm going to cut off all the subsidies to fossil fuel companies? No. Why? Because he's a status quo manager. That's what he is. 
He's a technocrat. He's a neoliberal corporate technocrat. Are you going to get the most minor of tweaks around the edges that might help some people? Sure, of course. I mean, remember, Obama, Biden, we got Obamacare through them. That did protect people with pre-existing conditions. That did let you stay on your parents' health care until you're 26 years old. That did make it so that health insurance companies actually have to spend 80% of their money on health care. Previously, they weren't. They are spending like 50% or whatever it may be. So, like, yes, there are going to be little things here and there that they give you the crumbs. But don't kid yourself. It's crumbs. And even things like this, which appear to be very basic, very straightforward, very simple, any reasonable person would agree with this, if you're looking at it objectively, he's going back on it. He's going back on it. And again, even if he kept the language in it, he wouldn't have followed through with it anyway. He's going to ignore so much of, the, of any platform that he's nominally supposed to be in favor of, whether it's stuff on his website or stuff in the Unity Commission that they did and, and their you know, findings and their recommendations. He's going to ignore all that stuff. But it's just so funny when now they even went that extra step to rub it in and be like, yeah, we're just going to yank that. Just don't. No biggie. Because really, they're going to turn around puff their chest out and be like, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? You're not going to do anything. You're not going to do anything. Because they got you by the balls, and they know they got you by the balls. And that's why, you know, it's pathetic when you see people who are on the left attacking other lefties and yelling at them to fall in line. Because really, all of that energy should be directed at the politicians to, you better make better, more concessions, real concessions, that people will believe because if you're actually forcing the politicians to do some more things that the left would want, that's how you're going to get more lefties on board. You're never going to shame all the lefties into falling in line. It's not going to happen. Because they, we've been through it before. We've seen the game unfold. We know how it works. It's just it, it, that, that's not a tactic that, func- that actually works. You're never going to shame people to fall in line. You have a, a, lot, a much better chance if all of that energy was directed at Biden to do some concessions that are really tangible, which is why I was so mad at Bernie for, you know, dropping out and endorsing Biden without getting any executive orders from him in the first 100 days, which I think was the model that would have been the easiest and the best to then turn around to the left and say, look at what you're leaving on the table. You know, I, in theory, you should have really been able to get like legalizing marijuana from them for sure. And you could do that through executive order. You just take it off the scheduled substances list or reduce the the scheduling. He could have gotten that. He could have gotten a a guarantee in the first 100 days to legalize marijuana, but he would have had to fight for it, and he would have been willing to walk away, and he's not going to do that. He He has no leverage now. The left has no leverage, and they're reminding you you have no leverage now. This is them rubbing it in. Yeah, so you guys fucked up. You were playing checkers. We were playing chess. Tell me how my ass tastes. I'm not going to do this. And I'm not even going to keep it in the platform and not do it. I'm going to pull it out of the platform and further not do it. Please, guys, um, invite like 17 more Republicans to speak at the Democratic National Convention. They're almost at the point where they have, I mean, they maybe already have more time allotted for actual Republicans than the left. So fly that flag high, man. Rep it, because we know what you are. We see it. Let's take a break. When we come back, I will be viciously making fun of Joe Kennedy, who's running against Ed Markey. Um, He's just, he is such a stereotype. Stay right there, guys. We'll be right back.
right, I'm back, bitch. Man, oh man, I was eating them extra cheddar goldfish, and my life has drastically improved. Scientists should study whether or not extra cheddar goldfish are a cure for depression, because I'm starting to think that perhaps they are. All right, so um, let's make fun of Joe Kennedy in a very disrespectful and rude way. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. All right. <clears throat> hold on, hold on. Let's see what we got here. Okay, we covered that one. Here we go. Okay. Joe Kennedy is running against Ed Markey for a U.S. Senate seat in Massachusetts. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe that these Kennedys are made in a lab somewhere. Um, Kennedy's the grandson of RFK and the grandnephew of former President JFK. Kennedy name is like, you know, American royalty. I mean, it's like a Bush or a Clinton in that they're political dynasties. So, um... The question is, what's he running on? The answer is absolutely nothing. He's like, he's like the perfect example of a corporate Democrat who really has nothing specific they're fighting for and nothing poignant to say. And so he ends up releasing stuff like this. My family's come up an awful lot in this campaign. And I want to take a moment to tell you what they taught me. Tell me that leadership isn't about power. It's about humanity. It's about the messy stuff. The hope. The hurt. The common currency we share in a world that gives and takes far too much, far too often. You want to know about my family? Ask me about them. Because their legacy is my lesson. The sad thing is, you and I know damn well he practiced that in front of the mirror repeatedly, and he still managed to mess it up, and he still managed to sound insufferable. Guys, it's no longer 1992. Listen, you can't, if you're a corporate Democrat, you've got to update your operating system. Because this is like you're running a campaign from 1992. That's what that is. And it's the clearest thing I've ever seen. Like, the era of the platitude and the cliche is over. It is over. They keep running as if, like, the Trump campaign never happened. Here you have this guy who came along and broke every single political rule, and he won. What does that tell you? The political rules are garbage. They're not true. They're not real. They, somebody needs to make a, you know, corporate Democrat platitude word generator they have one for mayor pete but i used it honestly it's not that good like i was i was hoping for better but it's who can say the most words without actually saying anything so i mean go back and watch the kennedy thing again if you want but like nobody knows what he was saying there not a single person knows what he was saying because he wasn't really saying anything he was trying to sound flowery and hear the sound of his own voice and hope that you watch and go yes that's a leader Yes, he looks like a Kennedy, yes. We need to have a, a contest, some sort of competition, as to who can out-corporate Democrats speak everybody. So here, I'll, I'll get kicked off. 
you got to point like this because this is how shitty politicians point. They have their their hand motions that they do. Oh, he's doing the point. He's doing the. But you could do that one or the thumb point, and you say, "The hope of our values will unify our diversity." Commitment to gratitude is the leadership of our time. Patriotism and common purpose will secure everyday people. I mean, this is like, this is, you're not saying anything. And this is why, you know, I've tried to teach you guys about what what I call the weasel words, because they never say anything substantive, but when they try to maybe barely dip their toe in that water, you'll hear the weasel word. So they'll say stuff like, what we need is more affordable access to health care. You should, sirens going off in your head if you hear that. It's red flags all over the place. Why? Because if they're saying affordable and access to health care, what that means is not free, universal, as in paid for by tax dollars. So not single payer, not universal health care, not catching up to the rest of the developed world. That means like ever so slightly expand Obamacare. But affordable means you're still going to have to pay, and it's going to come out of pocket. So you could still theoretically go bankrupt and improve access. Everybody already has access to health care. Access is not the freaking problem. It's that not everybody's covered, and a lot of people have medical bankruptcies. So this is why we're so insistent. Like, they need to say Medicare for all or single payer. Like, you need to say that. Any other, anything else? is just trying to put lipstick on a pig. And you'll hear it a lot from people like Joe Kennedy and every other corporate Democrat. You're going to hear it. You're going to hear these weasel words. You're going to hear like 80% of what he say is stuff like this. Is stuff like this. 80% of what he says. Um, it's going to be bland. It almost sounds like, you know, corporate training speak at, It's going to be that, and then the 20% of the time he does bring a policy, you'll hear a thousand weasel words, which will let you know, oh, he's not actually for the things that I'm in favor of. So trying to equip you guys with the tools to understand when a politician is BSing you and to demand better. Get them on the record for the specific policies. Um, So, yeah, anyway, Kennedy's running against Ed Markey. Um, Ed Markey, I'm sure I have a bunch of disagreements with him, but there's also no question that Ed Markey is significantly to the left of Kennedy. And I hate dynasty politics. I hate this like fake American royalty thing, whether it's the Clintons or the Bushes or the Kennedys. And uh, Ken- uh, Markey released a good ad where at the end of the ad, he flips the famous JFK quote on its head. Cause, and I've actually, I tweeted this once before, like years ago. Cause yeah, the famous quote is, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And I remember years ago, I, you know, I was talking about that, and I was like, but wait a second, we pay taxes. So, yes, the government actually should be doing stuff for us, so I am going to ask what my government can do for me. Or else, why am I, what am I doing, paying taxes so that they could rob me and run away with the money? No, I'm paying taxes so that they provide public goods and services. So, of course, I want the government to do stuff for me. 
Markey made a similar point. He flipped that quote on its head at the end of his ad where he was like, it is time to ask what our government can do for us. Damn right. And he, by the way, he's one of the people leading the way on, uh, on, green, on the Green New Deal. That's apparently an issue that he actually cares a lot about. So, um, yeah, he may have problems, but he's way better than Kennedy. It's not even close. It's not even close. You know, so if you're in Massachusetts, do whatever you got to do, because I don't know how much longer I can take <laughs> the platitude garbage, the hope of our values. We'll unify our diversity of commitment to gratitude with common purpose and patriotism. That doesn't mean anything. Okay. All right, we're moving on. We are moving on. I have a feeling this next one might take a long time, but we'll find out. We'll see. Who knows? So there was an interesting back and forth that happened on Twitter between Jonathan Chait and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, this is Jonathan Chait. I have to say up front, not a big fan. Not a big fan. I find him kind of like a banal, um, you know, kind of standard Democrat. Um, he's just ideologically, he's just not, he's not in agreement with me, in alignment with me. He's, I find him also pretty boring. His takes are pretty silly. But anyway, I digress. So Jonathan Chate said the following. I don't think this rhetoric by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is for millennials per se. I think it's for products of elite universities. Now, here's what he's citing. This is from her speech of the DNC. She talked about a mass people's movement working to establish 21st century social, economic, and human rights. She called for that movement to recognize and repair the wounds of racial injustice, colonization, misogyny, and homophobia, and reimagine systems of immigration and foreign policy that turn away from the violence and xenophobia of our past. These are all lines that are standard fare on the millennial left but would never get past a Biden speechwriter. So again, he said, I don't think this rhetoric by AOC is for millennials per se. I think it's for products of elite universities. So basically he's saying like the kind of language that she's using there is actually not common among millennials or working people. The kind of language that she's using there is more of almost like an elite academia lingo. That's the point he's making. Now she responds and says the following. If you believe people have to go to an elite university, to know what racism, classism, and xenophobia are, maybe that is a reflection of your class race experience more than it is anyone else's. Working class people are just as perceptive as the privileged, oftentimes more so. So this kind of sparked um, a debate on Twitter. Now, you know, I'm more in left-wing circles, so what I was seeing was a lot more agreement with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and people dunking on Jonathan Chait. Now, I want to bring up Bhaskar Sankara of Jacobin. He had an interesting point. I want to tell you what he said. He said, I hate to say it, but I found, I found these lines to be really jargony, talking about AOC. It's not that working people don't know what these words mean, but AOC is so much more powerful when she speaks to day-to-day experiences and emotions rather than just list things. She's too great an orator for this, Bhaskar said. Um, Now, there's a reason why we're talking about this. 
because I actually think that this is one of those issues that is like one of the most important and it's not talked about nearly enough but look generally speaking I need the left to try a hell of a lot harder to be less insular now listen I'm not I'm I re- I seriously don't like Jonathan Jake I don't I <laughs> I think he's boring, banal, stale. I don't agree with him most of the time, okay? But what he's touching on here, is is it real? Yeah, it is. And, and in my experience, what I see from lefties is they love to preach to the choir. They love to do the in-group signaling to let other lefties know, like, we're all part of this thing, right? We part of this thing? Oh, yeah, we're part of this thing. And so they have certain words that they use, and it's really, the left is really comfortable, and they're in a position where they're an edgy subculture, and a lot of people take comfort and find identity in something like that. It's self-actualization. Hey, I finally found a place for me in this world. A place for me is in my group of of fellow lefties, we have our little edgy subculture where we poke fun at everybody else and, and we have a good time with each other. And listen, that's all fine and dandy for what it is. But let's be very clear that that is at odds with getting power in the country and actually getting our ideas implemented. You can be a permanent edgy subculture or you can become the dominant governing majority and actually win on policy. And, you know, my idea is I want to do that. I want to get Medicare for all. I want to end the wars. So what am I getting at? Listen, I know this is a long roundabout way of getting to it, but if you can say something in two sentences instead of three paragraphs, say it in two sentences. Don't say it in three paragraphs. If you can find a way to avoid all of the new sociological leftist terminology that has become pervasive in academia, by all means do it. There's not a single working person who casually uses the term intersectional in conversation. They don't do it. They don't. You're kind of dating yourself if you use that. Now, AOC did not use that. I want to be clear. So I'm not taking a shot at her here. Um, But there are lefty types who love to throw that around. Now, some of the terms she used, yes, everybody knows what misogyny and homophobia is and all that stuff. Um, But like colonialism, when you throw around colonialism, there's always, there's a way to make arguments that appeal to everybody, number one, but number two, even have a chance of converting people who are your enemies. And you should always be, if you're in politics, you should always be cognizant of basically trying to talk to people even who are your biggest skeptics. Because a good politician not only keeps their base happy, which they do, that's very important, but they also win over people who don't agree with them to their way of thinking. And the way the left functions today, it's decidedly the opposite of that. There is a very big problem with lefties being insular and not realizing that, like, oh, this is why you never get anywhere. This is why, you know, even though the American people agree with us on almost every issue, we don't have nearly enough people in Washington, D.C., Now, yes, a lot of that is corruption. A lot of that is big money. A lot of that is a timing issue. We haven't been organized for long enough to really make a good run at it. 
But there are also very clear problems in terms of our lingo, how we approach these things. And I, I really want to fix that. So instead of talking about we need to redress the grievances of the legacy of colonialism, here's what you say. End every single offensive war that we're engaged in. That's it. Get out of Iraq. Get out of Afghanistan. Stop drone bombing innocent people. That's what you say. Now, guess what? We just said the same thing. End colonialism. End the, war, end the offensive wars where we're killing civilians. We just said the same thing. One of those things is going to get 75% of people to agree to it. The other one is going to get 42%. Why on earth would you pick the thing that gets you 42% approval? There's only one reason to do it, the in-group signaling to other lefties. I'm with you. Are you with me? Oh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm totally I'm, – I'm going to use our internal lingo. You ready for me to use our internal lingo? Okay, totally use that internal lingo. It's so great when you do that. For the love of God, we got to win. In order to win, you have to connect with regular people. In order to connect with regular people, you have to, you have to almost rise above the cultural bullshit that's so pervasive in today's day and age. And I know it's tough to make the arguments of, like, you got to be better than that because there's people on the Republican side are not better than that. But if you really want to win, you pick your battles. And you should pick your battle. You should always lead with the things that people already agree with you on and frame it in a way that make them agree with you even more. Politics is not rocket science, guys. It's not. And so... Listen, I don't, wanna, I don't think Jonathan Chait is making a great point because this isn't like she was throwing around intersectional or, or other terms that are really deep in that, in that bubble. Um, but there is a broader point to be made here about how the left almost handicaps itself to make sure that we never appeal to a broader audience. And I really do want to change that. I really do want to fix that. And I think the solutions are really simple. You know, if the left were to go all in on Medicare for all, living wage, ending the wars, frame these things in a way that highlights the populist in populist progressive, you're going to get such a crushing governing majority and you're going to have the overwhelming support of everybody that, you know, you're basically, you get to a point where they can't even strawman you successfully. And unfortunately, I think oftentimes lefties kind of casually walk on minefields and give their enemies so much help, so much help. Again, you should craft arguments in a way that would even appeal, that will hold your base for sure, but also appeal to those who are skeptical of you. And I basically see the opposite on the left nowadays. And I really hope we can get past it, man. I really do. Don't be afraid to talk like a normal freaking person. Be as normie as you can possibly be. Because you know what? Most people are normies. So if you want to, if, if, now listen, if your whole thing about politics is, no, I don't, I don't care about the actual end goals of ending the wars and giving people a living wage and getting health care. If you're not in it for that, fine then who am I to tell you not to, you know, act how you're acting and not to be your, your niche little click edgy subgroup? If that's the whole point and you're acknowledging to yourself, yes, this is what I want to do, then that's fine. Then go ahead and do that and it is what it is. But 
you know, I'd like to think most of the people on the left actually do care about the end goals more than anything else. And if that's the case, why would you not try to make things sound appealing and normal and not like super academic and up your own ass? You know, I see no... One of my biggest pet peeves is when I think people are not making the argument they believe in and not talking from the heart, but they're saying the thing that they think they're supposed to say. I think that gets under my skin more than anything else because I can smell it from a mile away. I can see it. You can see it. Those kinds of comments, they, they drip with that. You know what I mean? Like it, it drips with, oh, you're just doing the thing where it's like, you know, you're, like Boscar said, you're listing things. I will list left-wing things and use all the left-wing buzzwords. Okay, well, have fun preaching to the choir from now until the end of time, but I really want to get some serious W's in terms of policy, and the way to do that is to take the opposite approach and sound as normal as possible while not giving an inch on your actual values. Okay, next. Tucker Carlson absolutely lost his mind over Cardi B talking shit. I mean, this is, this is actually in many ways classic Fox News. So let's watch and then we'll come back and I'll explain why. To give you a sense of what this song is about, and again, we should tell you this is one of the most popular songs in the country and you need to go online and look up its lyrics. Here's the woman who sings it, Cardi B, explaining to women how they can become more useful sex objects. Watch. And I just f***ed that dry ass because y'all P.A. Spanish is off. And you want to know why? It's not because you're born with it. It's because y'all keep f***ing these dirty ass You got to tell babe, yo, your are more like mustard. My f***ing going to throw my P.A. Spanish off. Y'all f***ing these little dirty ass right now so much happening in the world right now i mean we got 170,000 people dead from covid and that's just the official number the real number i'm sure is much higher than that five million people have had it the economy's imploding 20 percent real unemployment people taking wage cuts all over the place 80 percent of the country living paycheck to paycheck infrastructure gets a grade of d plus uh health crisis the likes of which we've never seen because people are hemorrhaging their health care because it's tied to their job and they're losing their jobs all that's going on. Tucker, you're talking about Cardi B talking shit. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? By the way, it, like, I, he's singling her out because she's now like loud and aggressive and on the left. But you listen to any podcast in the country and people are 
being open and honest, even to the point of, like, saying things that might be cringeworthy. So if you watch that Cardi B clip and you're cringing, I get it. She's she's talking about fucking and bacon, egg, and cheeses. (laughs) Like, I get it. But that's not not to single out my friend Joe Rogan, because I love him, but, like, go turn on Joe Rogan's podcast when he's bullshitting with a, a, a comedian friend. Everybody, people talk shit. People say stuff like this. People... Sometimes, in the, eyes of too, in the eyes of some people, are too honest. I don't think there's really such a thing, but some people don't like it when you wear your heart on your sleeve and you lay it all out there, you know? Because some people appreciate and respect and like the idea of, like, a polite society where, mm, yeah, we're all, we're all very above the fray. And have you ever farted? No, 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 I'm against farting. They should make farting illegal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, there are people like that, but go watch something else. Dippy, does all of society have to cater to your uptight, you know, instincts? No. You don't like Cardi B? Don't watch Cardi B. Don't listen to Cardi B. Move on. Move on.org. Like, who cares, man? Who cares? But they can't help themselves. Now, this is, I said before the clip, this is like classic Fox News. How? Why? Well, because Fox News has been doing this for such a long time. Sean Hannity used to do this, probably still does. Bill O'Reilly used to do this. Every time spring break would come around, they would send a camera crew to, like, the beaches in Cancun back when that was the hot place to go. And you'd see, like, people getting drunk and hooking up and girls shaking their asses, and Fox News would be there with the camera crew. And then Sean Hannity or Bill O'Reilly would be like, My goodness! Are you aware of what these young people are doing on the beach? I see booty shaking. It's so hot. I mean, bad. Very bad. They must stop this. Let's watch it again, this time in slow motion. (laughs) This is what they do. So, you know, now he bleeped it all out and stuff, but Tucker, if it was really, you know, all that bad and all that terrible, why are you running the video? (laughs) This is so disgusting and wrong and evil and dumb. Let's watch it again. (laughs) Come on, man. I mean, I know you see how ridiculous that is. But, guys, this is what cultural conservatism is. This is not too far removed from Ben Shapiro the other day. Remember, Ben Shapiro was reading the lyrics to WAP. And, well, you know... My wife's a doctor, and this is, like, um, totally a diagnosable medical condition. So if you're a woman and you have a WAP, maybe go consult a doctor and maybe get some antibiotics. Because, like, yeah, a WAP is not healthy. I know because every woman I've ever been with is so dry, like, all the time. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> Loser. Same thing with Tucker. Just, who cares? What happened? To- I'm, I'm a populist. Let's talk about some naughty language that a rapper used. Very populist of you, bro. Who cares? Move on with your life. Move on with your life. You sound ridiculous. You sound ridiculous. Like, what is she supposed to do? Is it her job to uphold, like, Victorian puritanical ethics? Is that Cardi B's job? When did she sign up for that? I missed it. By the way, I, like, maybe they're leaning into stuff like this because they, they feel like they have nothing else at the moment. Nothing. With all the deaths from COVID and the economy doing terrible. So now his whole thing is like, I got it. We'll do the old trick. Just lean into the culture war even more. That's it. 
And so at the RNC, Brock Turner is speaking. The Covington kids are speaking. The, the, the old couple that had the gun and went outside with the protesters, they're speaking. Like, this is, if this is what's going on in your mind at a time like right now, I feel bad for you. Like, what a waste of time. What a waste of a life to care about this stuff. I mean, it's just, you're telling on yourself and how unserious you are about the issues. All right, we're going to go on to do more Tucker Carlson. Well, I'm sorry. Wrong. Not more Tucker Carlson. More Cardi B. Anthony. Okay, that's not right. Don't mix those two. What are you doing? (laughs) All right, here we go. Cardi B did an interview with Joe Biden, um, and she pushed him on a bunch of issues. Now, previously, she supported Bernie Sanders in 2016. She supported Bernie Sanders in 2020. She's done a couple things with Bernie Sanders. Now, listen, she knows the deal. We all know the deal. The whole point of having events with Cardi B doing an interview, whether it was with Bernie or whether it's with Biden now. The whole point is, how do you do, fellow kids? Please put me in charge. Please. Like, that's the whole point. Everybody knows it. You know, it's not like Joe Biden and his team were sitting around and they were like, I wonder what Cardi B thinks about this. No, of course not. Of course not. Now, but that's not to be disrespectful to her or whatever. That's just, that's just what it is. And again, I think she would even admit that. So anyway, she pushed him on a bunch of issues. I'll I'll show you one part, uh, but I'll give you an amazing fact when we come back. I mean, this is really fascinating. To give you a sense of what this... Wrong one. There we go. In 2016, if 18 to 23 or 4-year-olds have voted in the same percentage as the rest of the population, we would have had Hillary Clinton, not him. The vote matters. That's why you keep talking to people about the need to vote. The vote yes. matters. It matters a great deal. And so we got to take, we, look, the, the generation, your generation and the young millennials beyond that, they can own this. They can own this outcome. And they can own what happens in the next election. They are the ones that can change things dramatically if they show up and vote. Tell me what your fans most say to you when they communicate with you online. What are they most concerned about? Obviously, free free, uh, college education, free Medicare, especially now that, you know, people are just getting sick left to right. So she brings up Medicare for all there. Throughout the entire interview, she brings up Medicare for All four times. Four times. Cardi B, who's just, I don't, I don't even know how this was framed, like how this discussion was framed. Was it framed as an interview? Was it framed as just a talk? Whatever it is, she ended up grilling Joe Biden more than actual reporters and journalists who sit down with him. How sad is that, man? How sad is that? That is a strong indictment on all the elite 
media people. Because they, you know what? They care about access. They care about access. So that means, hey, I might have an interview with Biden now, but he can give me scoops down the road that I could be the one to break the news. So I got to keep a, a relationship with him. So I don't want to piss him off too much. Now, in a situation like that, is a reporter going to push Joe Biden on his vote for the Iraq war, his support of the Patriot Act, his support of various outsourcing deals? Is he going to do that? Is he going to push him on legalizing recreational marijuana and freeing the nonviolent drug offenders? Hey, man, you say, you know, you feel bad about aspects of the crime bill. Well, if you really want to bring about racial justice, why wouldn't you free every nonviolent drug offender? Because the drug war is racist. They're locking up disproportionately people of color. Why don't you free all the nonviolent drug offenders? A reporter's not going to ask these questions because they want to keep that relationship with Biden. They want to be chummy. So Cardi B ends up doing a better job without even trying. Without even trying. That shows you how rotten the culture of mainstream journalism and reporting is in this country. I mean, it really is sad that you guys feel like you have to come to a loudmouth YouTuber in order to get anything remotely resembling the truth on the political scene, where I'll call out the Republicans, I'll call out the Democrats, I'll give you what the issues are, what the facts are. You know you're getting nonsense from mainstream media. How sad is that? Cardi B ran circles around them without even trying. Where she can, We have a pandemic, and it took Cardi B to repeatedly bring up Medicare for All to Joe Biden's face. A pandemic where 30 million Americans don't have health insurance. And Cardi B is the one who had to bring up to Joe Biden repeatedly, listen, Medicare for All. I've heard a Cardi B rant previously where, and it was great. She was, she was like, I pay so much taxes, like, of course I want to have health care. Like, why am I paying you taxes if it's not going to things that make sense, like health care? That's right. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> the money should not be going towards endless wars. The money should not be going to Wall Street bailouts. The money should be going to health care and education. That's what it should be going towards. I'm really not looking forward. So, no matter what happens, I feel like we're screwed. If Trump wins, we're super screwed. If Biden wins, we're screwed too, maybe, maybe less. But, like, the media is going to be so sycophantic to everything a Biden administration does, especially with Kamala Harris's VP. And it's just going to be infuriating. It's just going to be so gross. And I hate the fact that the right-wingers can scream fake news, and they're not wrong. They're wrong about the way in which they think the media's fake news because they just want the media to be more right-wing. So they're wrong in the mechanics of it and the details of it. But is the media oftentimes fake news? Yeah, I mean, they push Russiagate endlessly. They push for the Iraq war. They push for the Iraq war, man. So, yeah, they're going to be totally sycophantic to a Joe Biden administration, and it's going to make me pull my hair out and age very quickly. Okay, next. All right, Trump was taking shots. 
we are going to discuss that. Donald Trump viciously attacked Ilhan Omar at a rally he did recently. Um, and he's really leaning into this idea of, like, the far left taking over the Democrats, bro. Biden's so far left, bro. So uh, let's see what he said. All they do is complain. Do you know anybody like that? They just complain. Does anybody know anybody like that? Do you know anybody, one of your colleagues? Do you call, do you call her a colleague? All she does is complain. I won't mention the name because you'll never guess it. Complains, complains, complains. I don't like that. I don't like it. All she does is complain. Not good enough. Oh, really? Tell us about it. Ilhan Omar. I mean, I hear the booze. How the hell did she win the primary? How did she win the Lacey? What the hell happened, Lacey? Huh? It's Jason's fault. How the hell did she win? This woman is crazy. She's a horrible woman who hates our country. She, well, yeah, mail-in vote. You're right there, right? We'll have to check that. Let's check the mail-in vote. Now, seriously, how does a woman who hates our country, who says nothing but bad things about our country and Israel and other of our allies, how does this woman win? You know all about that. Take away our energy, if you can believe it. No fossil fuel. Destroy our Second Amendment attack, the right to life, and replace American freedom with left-wing fascism. Left-wing. We're going left-wing all the way. Fascists. They are fascists. It's just so lazy. I don't know if he's not trying. I think he is trying. But my my working theory is that he's just... He's been in a right-wing bubble for so long, watching Fox News and One American News Network, that he just he can't see straight. He doesn't know what a sound criticism is anymore. He made many sound criticisms of Hillary Clinton with Trans-Pacific Partnership and NAFTA and the Iraq War, but, like, all the criticisms of Biden and all the criticisms of the left are just so so stupid. Left-wing fascists? Left-wing fascists. Why? Why? Ilhan Omar wants people to have health care. Is that fascism? Is that fascism to cover every American and they get quality care and it costs less? Is that fascism? Is it fascism to want more freedom for legal recreational marijuana? Is that fascism? What's the fascism part? Is it fas- She wants to end the wars. Is that fascism? My understanding was that fascists were very warlike. <laughs> like, what are, you, what are you doing? Or is it Biden? Biden's the fascist? How? How's Biden? Biden basically is a moderate Republican. So, you know, unless you think moderate Republicans are fascists, Maybe he's on to something. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> maybe, maybe Donnie's on to something. But if he's diet fascism, then you're full-blown fascism. I mean, that's obvious. The guy who was threatening to use the Insurrection Act to invade the United States of America with the U.S. Army, that guy's like, oh, this fascism, so bad, so wrong. The guy who's like openly floated, what if we just delayed the election? That guy's calling other people a fascist. Unbelievable. So, but listen, the most important point of this clip is look at the way Donald Trump talks about Ilhan Omar, and he does this across the board with people of color. He really does. 
the arguments he uses, there's another layer to it, another level to it, that you do not see him use against white left-wingers. So he starts out by saying, complain, complain, complain. All she does is complain. How did she win? She hates America, and she's horrible. So think about it. Donald Trump ran his campaign on Make America Great Again. Again. As in, it's not great now, it's bad now, so we have to make it great again. And he literally would give speeches where he says, our airports are shit, everything's crumbling, everything's falling apart, our leaders are stupid, nothing works anymore. Like, he would say all that stuff. And then he would say, I'm going to make America great again. So, dude, that's you complaining, complaining, complaining. That's you hating America, according to your own argument here. But when you do it, see, he grants himself the permission that any time he makes a criticism, he's obviously criticizing because he wants to fix stuff. He wants to make stuff better. But he never grants people of color who are lefties, he never grants them that. He never grants Ilhan Omar or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Rashida Tlaib or Ayanna Presley. He never grants them, like, Oh, hey, maybe when they criticize, they're also criticizing because dissent is the highest form of patriotism, and they're trying to improve the country. It, he always has to frame it as if it's nefarious. Like, Ilhan Omar was trying to end the Afghanistan war. When she does it, it's supposed to be like, oh, because she's anti-America, she does it, but when you do it, it's because you love America? When you talk about ending it, because he hasn't ended it, but he pretends like he wants to end it, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. Listen. You should only attack people's motives when there's really evidence that it makes sense to do so. In other words, treat, them, treat other people legitimately and take them at their word until they prove otherwise that you shouldn't do that. But it's never, especially with black and brown people, young lefties, it's just attack the motives relentlessly, attack the intent relentlessly. So she's complaining because she hates the country, not because she wants to fix it. She's complaining because she's horrible. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm complaining because I'm a boss who wants to get things done and fix it. It's just the, the level of conversation that we're having is honestly insulting. And there's no doubt that this instinct in Trump to treat her this way, that, is, that does stem from bigotry. It absolutely stems from bigotry. She's a young black Muslim woman. Of course she doesn't love this country. That's what's going on in his head. Of course I can attack her, um, her motives. She's, that's un-American. It's un-American to be a young black Muslim woman. That's what he thinks. That's what he thinks. He wouldn't outright say it. This is a subconscious thing going on. But it's definitely going on because there's that extra level, that extra layer of vitriol that you don't have with the attacks on other. Like, guys, I can, I can bash the country all day and night. And honestly, I get more of a path. Like, the conservatives will disagree with me. The conservatives will argue with me. But they'll never tell me, like, get out of the country. Because they think that's absurd. Of course, I might disagree with him, but he's American. Duh. Whenever it's a person of color who's a leftist, that's not how they think. They, they try to question how American they are. And they try to question whether or not they even like the country. Like, I'm granted that whatever I say is he means it. And even if I disagree with him, he, he means well, but I just think he's wrong. She doesn't get that. She isn't granted that because she's treated as the other. 
Now, the, the final thing I want to say about this clip, and I actually think this is pretty important. If you go back and watch it, somebody in the audience brings up like, oh, the mail-in voting. Oh, the mail-in voting. That's how Ilhan Omar won. So in other words, they're trying to make the argument that Trump has been making relentlessly on the campaign trail, which is like, oh, obviously that's fraudulent, and obviously that's an attempt to steal the election. Mail-in voting is bad and wrong, and it's a Democratic corrupt plot. Like, that's what Trump has been arguing. When that guy brings it up, Trump, like, laughs and giggles along with it, and he's like, yeah, I guess we got to take a look at that, huh? Let's take a look at the mail-in voting. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into it, and you guys could take a look, and you tell me, but I almost sense that, like, he knew that he's full of it when he's making that argument as if it really is, you know, as if it really is fraudulent. Like, he knows it's not fraudulent, the mail-in voting stuff. He knows it. Because when that guy brings it up, he reacts to it like, oh, that thing that I'm saying is actually working on these rubes? That, like, trying to say that that's illegitimate? Like, he's just trying to give himself excuses and undermine the results if the results come in and he loses. And, but, like, he, he knows that that's what he's doing. That's what I sensed from his reaction to the guy who brought, in, brought up the mail-in voting. That's the sense I got. Again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm reading too into it. But it strikes me like he knows. It strikes me like he knows, which is actually even scarier. It would almost be a less scary prospect if he was, if he was just dumb. You know? But, like, no, he knows that this argument he's using is bullshit and he uses it anyway. What else you got planned, dog? It just, it's not pretty. Okay. Uno mas, y'all. One more before we call it a day. The Trump people cannot stop talking about boaters. <laughs> they love boaters. Trump famously said a while ago, like, we love our beautiful boaters. Beautiful boaters. And I think he put it in quotation marks and put, like, capital letters for the beginning of the, of the words. It's classic Trump. But anyway, um, it's one of the weirdest parts of this election, how obsessed the Trump people are with boaters. So they're out with a new ad. <laughs> About the boaters. Watch. I appreciate the boaters for Trump. Every weekend I see it. Not even weekends now. They're doing it during the week. And I just wish I had time. I'd get on one of those boats and I'd be carrying a flag also. But I have to say, it looks like you're having a good time. I just want to thank everybody. I see that, and the whole world is watching. And you people are fantastic. Your spirit, your strength, and you get it. You know what you're doing. So go out and have a lot of fun and celebrate. And the big thing is, November 3rd, get out and vote. We can't let the radical left take over this country. They'll raise your taxes by three to four times. They're looking at 90% rates, 90, 95. 
and they won't be able to afford that. They need 300%. These people are crazy, and we have to stop them. Thank you very much. Okay, the funniest part about this is that it's a real thing that, like, the Trump insiders, they actually think the voter enthusiasm is like a sign of, is an indicator of how the election will go, even more so than, like, a plethora of polls, which is insane. (laughs) Now, I get it. Listen, Biden was up a lot previously, and now his lead is shrinking. Is it possible that the poll where he was only up four is an outlier? Yes, but it's also possible that's not the case and that Trump is kind of narrowing the gap. The CNN poll was plus 14 last month. It's plus four this month for Biden. So, yes, there is something to be concerned about there. But, like, the voters were never an indication of how the election's going. The voters were never an indication of how the election was going. That's such a niche thing. That's so, like, that's so in the weeds. But they really looked at that and they were like, well, obviously... Obviously, the fake news media is being fake news. We know we're doing well because look at all these voters. <laughs> voters! Oh, man, that's so funny. Um, so it's indicative of nothing. Take nothing away from the voters. But uh, even in the, you know, goofy, funny ad about, like, we love our beautiful voters, he couldn't help himself but do the, you know, the BS about taxes. Honestly, this is one of the most infuriating things in politics, in my opinion, is the Republicans just go back to their standard playbook for every Democratic candidate. It doesn't matter who it is. They're going to call you a socialist. They're going to call you a Marxist. They're going to say you're far left. They're going to say you're a radical. And they're also going to lie about your tax plan. And they're going to argue they want to raise everybody's taxes. Trump said they're going to have 90%, 95%. He even at one point said 300%. <laughs> what? <laughs> that makes no sense. That makes no sense. But, like, it's misleading, and it's misleading on purpose. And, and that's the thing that's frustrating is that they're just lying. Because, they don't, like, honestly, I think the overwhelming majority of people in this country don't even know what a marginal tax rate is. And, like... First of all, nobody's even calling for a 90% marginal tax rate. Nobody in today's politics is doing that. Literally nobody. Nobody who's elected is calling for a 90% top marginal tax rate. But even if they were, which they're not, that is not how they're portraying it. They're trying to portray it as that's the government taking 90% of your money. Not true. It would be the government stepping in saying, your first $2.5 million is taxed at a much lower rate and then everything above $2.5 million a year. So you're already massively rich, and that's not going to change. Everything above the $2.5 million uh, per year, that is taxed at 95%. Everything $2.5 million and up is taxed at 90 or 95%. And that's not even the actual rate, because that's what's called the nominal rate, which is what it is on paper. The effective rate, which is what you actually pay, is closer to 40 or 50%. Like, back during the Eisenhower years, we had a top marginal tax rate of 93%. Now, what did that mean? It meant that in the equivalent of $2.5 million or so in today's money, everything above that was taxed at 93%, but that wasn't the effective rate. The effective rate was around 45%. 
So it was just higher marginal taxes, but there were still very, very rich people. And, but, and also, by the way, it happens to coincide. When you have high marginal taxes on the wealthy, that happens to coincide with what was called the golden age of economic expansion in the United States. It was post-World War II. All, Europe was destroyed. We were the only game in town in terms of a functioning economy. And we were the exporter to the world. We were producing everything. And we had a healthy, thriving middle class. Part of that was we had higher taxes on the wealthy, and then, yes, we redistributed in, in, in government programs for regular people to give everybody equal opportunity to then try to become rich, to then try to become wealthy. So, like, it's just they're liars, and they're misleading you. They want you to think the Democrats want to take all your money if you make, like, $35,000 a year. That's just not true. In fact, and this is a story I always go back to because I think it's, it just explains it so well. When you look at Democratic tax proposals, generally speaking, Democrats always want lower taxes on people making $100,000 a year or less. So if you make $100,000 a year or less, Democrats actually want to cut your taxes way more than the Republicans do. When the Republicans talk about cutting taxes, they ain't talking about you. Okay? They're talking about the rich, their real donor class, their real base of support. They're talking about Wall Street goons and CEOs and people like that, people who are in the top 1% or top 5% of people. That's who they really want to cut taxes for. Just look at their proposals. Look at their proposals, man. One of the biggest ones that the right pushes for is uh, what's called a flat tax. And that's like, okay, what if it's like 15% across the board for everybody? Well, guess what that does? That cuts taxes for the rich and that raises taxes on the poor and the middle class. That's what that does. A flat tax would raise taxes on you, cut taxes for the wealthy. So funny enough, he fearmongers about the Democrats coming to raise your taxes, but it's usually Republican tax proposals that raise taxes more on regular people. So I, I, just, I need everybody to understand this, because this is like one of the few arguments that Republicans use where they try to act like, actually, no, we're more for the working guy. Like, that's what we're for with the working person. Why? Well, we don't want the government to take your money. The Democrats do. Again, look at the specifics. Look at the proposals. The devil's in the details. Democrats typically want people who make less than 100 k to pay less in taxes and get more social services. And Republicans want you to pay more and get fewer social services. They're all about the rich, guys. They're all about the rich. The other thing they're all about is we have wonderful, beautiful voters. We love our boaters, people. We love our boaters. Okay. And on that note, everybody, I will see everybody next week. I love you dearly. Um, I hope everybody's staying healthy out there, man. Don't get, don't get too comfortable because COVID is still ripping through this country. There are certain hot spots, but everybody needs to be careful. Everybody, if you're going out in public, you have to wear your mask. Wear your mask if you're out in public, if you're in any indoor area with other people. You have to do it. You have to do it. You have to do it because the second you take your eye off the ball, it could hit you. You know, 170,000 people dead, and that number's still steadily rising. We got to be careful. We got to be careful. Unfortunately, nobody's looking out for you. The government is not looking out for you, so we have to look out for ourselves. Get a bunch of masks. Wear them in public. Stay safe. I hope everybody's doing okay out there in terms of being able to pay the bills because I know it's rough. It's rough right now, for sure. But anyway, 
I love you guys, and I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a good one. I'm out. Peace.